I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door, not by the beauty of it all, nor the lights or decor, but it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp, the thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, and the trash. There stood that kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I always thought was riding away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus, what's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How'd all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, he said. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd be seeing you. I like that. Don't judge. And that's what makes today's scripture so difficult. In fact, today's text is one of those that seems to contradict other parts of the Bible. Paul instructs the Corinthian church to expel one of its members because of sin. Throw them out. And our first reaction is an immediate aversion to that. How can we judge another person and throw them out of the church? How can a church actually dismember the body of Christ? Now, the particular situation in our text is a man and his stepmother were in an incestuous relationship, which was strictly forbidden in Jewish law, and even in pagan culture, it was condemned. And as bad as that sin was, what was worse to Paul was the church's reaction because they approved of it, or at least ignored it, and I think most people today would side with the Corinthians. Very few would be comfortable with what Paul teaches here. 1 Corinthians 5, starting verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you're assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The church was allowing a kind of incest that was even worse than what the world condemned and they were proud, he says. And Paul commands them four times in this chapter, put him out of the fellowship, hand him over to Satan, expel him. I mean, he wants them to get the message. This guy needs to go. Verse 12, then he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not you to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Don't worry about them. You expel the wicked person from among you. Paul clearly teaches that the Corinthians were to judge a fellow believer, and it just doesn't sound right. Paul says, I've already passed judgment on him. So how do you reconcile that with passages like Romans 14, where, again, the Apostle Paul says, you then, why do you judge your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Jesus himself said, do not judge or you will be judged. So in light of Jesus' teaching not to judge and Paul's teaching over in Romans to not judge, what do we do with this text where he says we are to judge? Should we ever excommunicate a church member? Let me begin with some objections to church discipline. One would be this is a private matter. This is none of the church's business. This is strictly an American objection. 
okay? I found a letter in my files from several years ago. It's a letter to Ann Landers. Some of you remember her. Uh, and this guy writes and says, Dear Ann, I have a problem. I'm happily married to a wonderful wife. We have two children. But I've also been seeing a young lady for the past six months. And the problem is that I love both of them. What should I do? Signed, confused, and then P.S., don't give me any of that morality stuff. Now, we live in a world that acknowledges only one sin, at least in our culture, and that is judging others or intolerance. And this guy is saying, Ann, I have a problem, but don't judge me. Don't give me any of that morality stuff. And that pretty much is the mantra today. And Ann's answer, which I thought was a good one, said, Dear confused, the only difference between humans and animals is morality. I suggest you contact your local veterinarian. <laughs> Without morality, we're just animals. But who are we to judge someone else? We're all sinners. We all fall short. How can one sinner discipline another? It's a very good question. Another objection to this is what good would it do? Today, a person can just go to another church down the street, and there's dozens of churches in Logan County, and so I get expelled here. Well, so what? I'll go somewhere else. They didn't have that option in Corinth. There was no other church in town. And so the argument could be made, today it won't have an impact. All you're going to do is make people mad. And that might be true, and this objection makes sense. What good will it do? Another objection, we could be sued. And some churches have been, for church discipline, have been sued. And all these objections have some merit to them. I still wonder, what do we do with this text? Tear it out? Ignore it? If we don't ignore it, how do we reconcile this text with other texts that tell us not to judge? Here's the first thing we have to agree upon. The first thing we have to come to grips with is to understand that all judging rightfully belongs to Jesus. We have to start there. The key phrase, I think, in this passage is verse 4. He says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the final and ultimate judge. You and I have no right to judge anyone. We are all sinners in desperate need of grace. And if you knew what God knows about me, you would fire me. You would not come and listen to me. And if we knew what God knows about you, we wouldn't let you in the doors. Every one of us is desperately in need of grace. So this act of judging of an immoral person is not because we're so good and holy. It's because Christ is good and holy. And this judging is not on our authority, but in Christ's authority. He says, when you gather in the name of the Lord Jesus and His authority, hand Him over to Satan. And in the passages against judging, like Romans 14, it's a totally different issue. That's judging where I put myself above you. And Paul says, why do you look down on your brothers and sisters? That's a judging motivated by a sense of superiority and self-righteousness, and it's an attempt really to bring someone else down. This judging in our text is motivated by grief and concern for the individual and for the church. It's really an act of service and compassion. In the name of Christ, in God's name, you have to do something. Now, this is not the only place in Scripture where we have church discipline. Let me give you some biblical reasons from here and other texts. First of all, behavior that destroys the purity of the church. That's what Paul's talking about here. A gross immorality, behavior that is so flagrant that it diminishes the church's reputation in the world. Even the world thinks this is bad. Paul broadens it in verse 11. This will get you. 
But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What are you going to do with that one? Do we have any greedy people in our church? Do we have any swindlers, dishonest? How about idolaters? Do we have slanders, any gossipers? And sexually immoral, yeah. So what do we do? Do we throw out everyone who fits any of these categories? There wouldn't be many of us left, except me and thee. And sometimes I wonder about thee. Paul is talking here about people who have obviously not left. They're continuing old activities from which they've been freed, blatantly, openly, without shame, living an ungodly lifestyle that is infecting the church. Some years ago, I read about a church where a wife of one of the deacons suddenly announced to her husband that she wanted a divorce. Complete shock to the husband and to the church. And the next Sunday, she came to uh, worship services accompanied by her male companion, who happened to be her boss. And she and her lover boss sat on one side, and her husband and three children sat on the other side, and she made no effort to disguise her intimate relationship with her boss. Clear-cut adultery. What do you do? What's the church do? Many churches would say, it's none of our business. I don't think Paul would have said that. And these elders felt the same way. They felt they had a duty to meet with her. They did. They insisted that she change her ways, return to her husband. If at all possible, she refused. The elders said she could not continue coming to church with her lover and flaunting the adultery. It was wrecking the church, tearing it apart. She said that her boyfriend was a non-Christian and he might be one to Christ if she were allowed to bring him to church. That's a good one. Adultery used as an evangelistic tool. So the elders had some meetings with her. It did no good. And finally, they did expel her, uh, you know, just excommunicated her. And it's because of an open, blatant attack on the integrity of the church. Did she sue? I don't know. I don't think so. Here's the bigger question than the lawsuit stuff. Would we refuse to do God's clear teaching out of fear of lawsuits? Do we fear God or fear men? We're going to talk about lawsuits in two weeks, by the way. And by the way, October is going to be crazy month. First Corinthians got a lot of crazy stuff in here. Today, this, and uh, next when we talk about lawsuits, just a little off the charts. Here's a second reason for biblical discipline. Behavior that destroys the unity of the church. Romans 16 says, watch out for those causing divisions in the body. Keep away from them. In Thessalonica, there were people who were idle and using their idle time to disrupt congregational life. And Paul says, keep away from every brother or sister who is idle. Do not associate with them. I mean, it's tough talk. See, it's not just Corinth where it's church discipline. Thessalonica, Romans, they were having to do it as well. Uh, uh, Do we have idle people here? Or disruptors? See, in our PC culture, Paul just wouldn't get very far. You can't do that. Not in a church. Titus 3, another church. He says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and self-condemned. Strong words again. Unity is so important to Paul and to Jesus and to the health of a church. You need to protect it. And the third reason is major doctrinal errors. 1 Timothy 1.20 talks about those who have rejected the teachings and shipwrecked the faith. Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. If someone rejects salvation by grace, or if a teacher rejects the bodily resurrection of Christ, there must be some action. Remove it. 
I read about an eight-year-old boy in South Africa who was found to have a flower seed in his left eye. And it actually sprouted. Possibly a marigold or daisy, they weren't sure what it was. Guess what they did? They removed it surgically. And the boy's doing fine. Cut the cancer out. That's what church discipline is. It's an act of grace. It's an act of love. It is the right and caring thing to do. Parents, let me ask, why would you ever take away your driver's license from your child who is caught drinking and driving? Are you mean, judgmental? Why would you make your eighth grader go without privileges for two weeks? Because you're mean? It's for their good. A parent's first job is not to be popular with their kids. Sorry. Your first job is to love them. And sometimes that means not being popular. There's a difference between love and popularity. And with our church, our first job is not to be popular or even to be big. Our first job is to be faithful. Does that make you judgmental when you discipline a child? Does that make you mean? Now, let me say this. All discipline, church discipline, parental, whatever, has to be done in love. It has to be done careful and not impetuously. It has to be done with as much grace as possible. Discipline should be a redemptive, positive thing. And there's two beneficiaries of church discipline. One is the offender, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. This sin was threatening this man's salvation. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we care enough to do something about it? Paul said, hand him over to Satan. Give him back to the devil. And again, to our ears, that sounds awful and so harsh. But this man had already gone over to the devil. And so you help him by disciplining him. Part of the problem with this text is the cultural difference from back then to today. Today, people see church as optional. I don't need the church to be saved. I can be a Christian without other Christians. Very, very common, very prominent. Being in the church doesn't make a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car and all that stuff. Back then, that would be bogus. If you were not in a church fellowship, if you were not in the body of Christ, you were not in Christ. You're lost. There is no such thing as an unchurched Christian in the New Testament. Being expelled from the church then was the same as revoking his salvation. And that's why it says, hand the man over to Satan. Give him back to the world. He's lost and he's damned. Not because of the church's action, but because of his own action. And so the job of the church is to show him. Here's the consequences of what you're doing. And to bring him back to his senses for his own good. Ezekiel says... If you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die. And I will hold you accountable for his blood. We're responsible. We're guilty. If we do not do anything and allow it to continue. Church discipline is an act of loving compassion. It says we love you enough to say something, to do something, and to discipline you. And if I'm going astray, I hope... One of you, some of you, would have enough courage to do something about it. The other beneficiary then is verse 6. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast. The other beneficiary is the church. A little yeast affects the whole batch. That behavior that you're allowing is infecting the body of Christ and the whole church is being contaminated by it. And, And again, I come back, man, if you do that... You're going to empty the church. You know, people will go to another church. They'll go down the street. And here's my observation on that. Most of the time, when church discipline is administered in the right way, with the right spirit, the church is blessed. I've seen it. 
Now, very important here. It should be resorted to only as a last, last resort when genuine love-motivated attempts have been made to restore the offender. That's the goal, restoration. So church discipline is not about punishment, it is about redemption. Galatians 6 says, restore him gently. Now, some of you might be wondering, man, why are you preaching this? Is there something heavy coming down the pipe? Am I in trouble? No, not that I know of. Here's why I'm preaching it, two reasons. Number one, it's in 1 Corinthians, and we're going for 1 Corinthians, so I have to preach it. And number two, I think there's some very, very good application for us personally. And the main thing I want to get from, the, from this today is what's following here, the principles that help our daily lives. Number one, we need to see the seriousness of sin. If we don't get anything else, this text reminds us sin destroys individuals, it destroys churches, it destroys families, it destroys marriages, it destroys societies. It is a killer and it is a cancer. And when we are commanded by God to expel someone for a particular sin, that sends a clear reminder of what God has, what God views about sin and His holiness. I know a church, I knew a church that let the cancer stay. I was in that church and they ignored it and swept it under the rug. And I was part of it. You know, we hoped it would take care of itself. And finally it got so bad, there had to be a decision to cut it out. And one of the elders later admitted, we should have done this 15 years ago. Because we waited, we were crippled as a church. It left huge scars, but today that church is healthy. It's better than most churches who will never cut out the cancer and eventually die. In Timothy, even an elder should be rebuked in the presence of all, publicly. Even elders are subject to discipline. If you do it, do it publicly. Why? Paul says, so that the rest of the church may be fearful of sinning. Do you fear sin? Do you understand the consequences? I don't think most people do. You know, our sins are just small foibles. You know, we can get away with it. No, I, I want to let this text open our eyes to this cancer. It's killing us. And we need to quit being apathetic and nonchalant and fear sin. Second principle. Discipline is necessary to discipleship. The word discipline is a derivative of the word disciple. And we bristle at the idea of anyone telling us, you know, that we need to make some changes in our lives and, you know, we want church to make us feel good and, you know, I'm okay and you're okay and we're all okay and we're just one big happy family and, you know, we just cover everything up. You know, there's a little boy that was overheard praying, Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time like I am. And that's kind of our prayer. And so we have a bunch of little boys and little girls who won't grow up, never been confronted for their behavior, their attitudes, their thinking, or the lifestyle, haven't changed a whip in 30 years. That's not discipleship. The Bible tells us to correct, rebuke, warn, admonish. It's not mean, that's love. Everyone here today has some wrong thinking and wrong behaviors and some areas where they need to grow, including me. There is no discipleship without discipline. And then the third thing, discipline is an act of love for the good of the offender and for the good of the church. Paul said so he can be saved. In 2 Corinthians, there's an interesting passage there where Paul talks about restoring someone who'd repented and some scholars believe it's possible. He's talking about this man in our text who was disciplined and he did repent and he was restored to the church and it saved him. It worked. Hebrews 12 says, God disciplined those He loves for their good so they could share in His holiness. 
And I can remember clear instances of church discipline. I've been involved with, I made reference to one, but there's been about four in 40 years that I've been involved with, one every 10 years. So I'm, we're waiting for the one here yet, I haven't yet. But anyway, in every situation, the elders, very slow, very patient about, which I think needs to be right, is the right way to do it. They did it out of love and out of grace and very careful in how they approach it. And every time, every one of those four instances, God blessed the church. It was tough, but it was the right thing to do. I was a member of Rotary years ago when we lived in Robinson. If I failed to attend one meeting, I had to make it up. Can you imagine doing that in church? Got to make up if you miss one meeting. If we fail to attend too many meetings in Rotary, we can get kicked out. In many private clubs, for failing to live up to a particular dress code, you can be dismissed. On some golf courses, you've got to wear a certain kind of shirt. Schools have rules and regulations, and students can be dispelled, expelled for disruptive behavior. And yet when the church even talks about discipline and imposes it, even for the most heinous offenses, we get charged with everything short of fascism. And I want to ask you, why would you, let me ask, why would you become a part of a body of Christ that has no standards? Do you want to be part of a church that has lower standards than a civic club? Sin kills. It kills churches. All the guilt, all the heartache, all the problems, all the relational problems you can think of, they're all somehow due to sin. And I want a church that will help me deal with it and confront it and call it what it is. I want a church that is very clear about what Jesus wants from me. I cannot deal with it on my own. Like the commercial says, I have fallen and I can't get up, not on my own. So I need a church that's going to tell me where I need to make some adjustments. Some of you may be all too happy to tell me afterwards, but uh, sometimes I'm, I need to hear some things. There's an old hymn that says, Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, weep o'er the erring one, lift up the fallen, weep, care, rescue. When dealing with sin, there's actually several aspects of it. I'm going to put these up there. Next, next slide, please. There we go. There's a several aspects of sin. There's the love of sin. Sin is always alluring and tempting. The practice of it, the state of it, we're, we're in a state of sin, the power of it, and the penalty of sin. At least those five aspects. And so there's a lot to deal with when it comes to dealing with, and the gospel deals with every one of these aspects. Faith destroys the love of sin as we grow in our faith in Jesus. Repentance destroys the practice of sin, making a U-turn, turning toward Christ. Baptism wipes out the state of sin. Sins have been washed away and you moved into a new state, a state of grace. The Holy Spirit destroys the power of sin, gives you a new power. The Holy Spirit is a power within you to help you deal with it, and the resurrection destroys the penalty of sin, which is death. And all five are needed to deal with the biggest problem in our lives. So I guess I'm wondering, where are you at? Do you need faith? Do you need repentance? Baptism? Holy Spirit? or maybe you need to make a rededication in all these areas, we're going to offer communion this morning, and it's going to be a little different as we do it. We want you to take that piece of paper that's on your chair and write down a sin from your life that you need to be freed from. 
And I would suggest you've already been freed from that sin through the cross. But maybe you're still struggling with it. It's still kind of hanging on and tormenting you. Some sin in your life, and it could be a sin of commission or a sin of omission. Maybe it's something you're not doing that you know you should. And I want you to fold it, and you're going to bring it to the cross. And we have staple guns here so you can staple it to the cross. Now, if your hands you know, have a hard time doing it, you just put, put the sin in the basket there. But if you can, we want you to staple that to the cross, remembering why Jesus died. If you're unable to get up and come forward, we're going to have someone at the back with a communion tray, and they'll come and serve you. And if you don't have a pen or pencil to write on, I have a pen. No, I don't have a pen. Anyway, borrow one from a neighbor or something. Uh, but write something on that paper that you have been freed of through the cross of Christ, but it's still nagging you. And come and bring it to the cross. I want you to staple to the cross first and then take communion. Do it in that order. Cross first, give him your sin, and then remember him for what he's done for you. We'll do this right after I pray. Lord, this text challenges us as a church and as individuals. We want to be a church that loves its members enough to speak when when there is behavior that is unholy before you. Give each of us courage to confront ourselves and maybe even a friend. But most of all today, I hope, Lord, we will see the seriousness and the cancer and the killer that sin is in our lives, in this world, and and even in the church, and how deeply indebted we are to you for the forgiveness that is offered. No matter how big or how seemingly small our sins may be, we know we need the cross, and we thank you for the cross. We thank you for baptism and the Holy Spirit and the cleansing that we can have because of Jesus. And then may these emblems that we take be a powerful reminder of what the cross has done for us. We pray this and we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? You come forward for to the cross and to communion.